Um, Chris Brackett is preaching for us this morning, and I believe he's leaving tomorrow after, you know, a long stay in, um, in the States uh, that wasn't planned by them, of course. So if you get a chance to hug him or his wife's neck and, you know, pray for them over the months ahead as they settle back into their homes in, in Croatia, and uh, <clears throat> particularly for their kids, um, you know, I just have watched how they have integrated into the body here. I mean, Chris and Nina, of course, but their kids have really integrated. And I, I can't imagine how tough that's going to be for them to to go back. Even, I mean, they do love it there, but uh, their oldest daughter is teenagers. Anybody know how old she really is? Six, 15, 16. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's got to be tough, you know. So pray for them that they would integrate well back into their um, uh, home in Croatia and continue to lift up Shane and Tara as they're still in Italy. I think traveling, tra- traveling back Tuesday, I think. Is that right? Tuesday. And then this is going to be Don and Wilder's last Sunday with us. They are taking the move to west, westward bound to uh, Louisiana to um, go and um, really, I guess, assist Wilder's parents. And Wilder's dad, how old is he? 93. 93. And you know what he does on a regular basis? They, they still, they still kind of work, I guess you could say. He owns a fish camp, and so he fishes. 93 years old and still goes out and fishes. That's a man after my own heart. He doesn't have to go by himself. No, he doesn't get to go by himself anymore in the boat, but... He's got a. There you go. (laughs) Amen. Well, we're certainly going to miss you all, and I know you'll probably come back and visit since your daughter and son-in-law are grandkids. grandkids. Yeah. (laughs) Forget the daughter and son-in-law. The grandkids. Yeah. All right. But we're going to miss you guys, and you know, hope the best for you, and we'll pray for you, and won't forget about you. So let's turn to Mark chapter ten. And um, pick up where we've been learning about our Lord as he continues his journey towards Jerusalem. And we're going to read verse 1 through, um, uh, I guess, maybe 31. Mark chapter 10, it says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. I was listening to this um, on the Max McLean uh, audio Bible, you know. Do y'all ever listen to that? It's just great. And he, 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 what's the right word when he inflects, you know, when it the changes, you know. So it was, I didn't do it. I, my mind went there, but I didn't do it, you know, when the, the Pharisees, when they answered Jesus back, he gives a really neat inflection that you can just almost, feel their pride, you know, that they knew the law. Anyway, uh, verse 4, then, then said Moses 
they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will, be, will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers, mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So... We learned a few weeks ago that Jesus taught the, the couple lessons before this in chapter 9. In verse 30, we learned that Jesus you know, had taken a time aside and he was teaching his disciples privately. And now uh, that private teaching is coming to an end, right? And verse 1 tells us that he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And I looked at that <clears throat> that area on the map, and, uh, you know, when we're not real familiar with other parts of the world, you know, that you can kind of lose track of, I kind of thought in my mind what that looked like, and, you know, I can kind of, I know the geographic area of, around here and the state of Georgia pretty well, but outside of that, you know, we kind of lose track of that. So it was interesting to look at a map and, 
I know Tim had drawn for us before. I'm not that artistic, so I'm not gonna gonna do that. But it's it's really neat to go and look on your maps and see where they went, you know, and moved, you know, towards Jerusalem. And um, when they left here, they chapter nine verse thirty tells us that they left he left the region of Galilee and better still, more particularly the area of Capernaum, in verse thirty three of chapter nine and. From this point forward, though, they're on the move, pretty much, not really camped out a whole lot, and, and it's, it's all towards this climax that's coming in Jerusalem, and of course, as Tim has taught us, that, you know, the disciples are there with them all the time, it's interesting as you see that, but I still am not sure in my mind, I could be wrong, but I'm still not sure in my mind they quite got it, you know, they were... They were just kind of following him, right? They were de- devoted to him, and they were following him. But, you know, that's why, as we'll see in, the, you know, in picking up um, next in a couple of weeks or whenever on verse 32, where the, for the third time, and we looked at that last week, he foretells his death again. If they really got that, why would he have to be saying it two and three times, right? So he kind of starts to reiterate that. So I'm not sure they even knew where they were going. They're just kind of following him, right? And and they <clears throat> they're headed towards Jerusalem, and Mark and Matthew don't record the ministry that takes place in Judea. They pick up and start telling us uh, about this area beyond the Jordan, and it's to the east of the Jordan. If you look at it on the map, it's an area called Perea. And we see here in, in verse 1 that once again, as I said a minute ago, they, he was teaching privately, we learned in the weeks past, but now crowds are gathered to him and this public ministry, if you will, is kind of back on the scene. And Matthew tells us that Jesus heals their sick and as he had done previously in Galilee. But here Mark doesn't mention anything about the healing ministry. He talks about the teaching ministry. And I thought that was interesting as well as I studied that. And what we learn about that is that the, the two are, are just hand in hand all the time. You know, one might mention this, maybe Mark was more interested in the teaching and Matthew was more interested in the healing, but there's, there's the, the two went together. I heard when I was a, a new Christian, I was in the uh, pest control business, and boy, the Lord just set that up so beautifully for me because I came from a Catholic background, really a no background, you know, I mean, I was raised Catholic, but probably by age 15 definitely by 16 I wasn't going to church anymore so you know I mean I was an adult at 38 when I was saved and I mean I honestly knew nothing about the Bible I knew about Jesus and I knew that he was the son of God but I didn't know anything about salvation and being saved and you know that's what Baptists did you know they 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 get born again you know they're one of those born again people is how my mind always went so when I was saved, it was all just brand new to me, and, and I couldn't, it, it was the, I've, I've been told and I understand now that that was a sign of the fruit, or the spirit working in me, that I had this insatiable desire for God, and for the things of God, and um, so what a better job, there was no better job for me to have than being a, a bug guy, right, because you ride around in a truck all day. Well, I don't think the Christian radio in Atlanta is as good as it was then. This was in 1991. And there were four or five really good Christian radio stations at that time that had preachers. And and I knew where they were. You know, I had post-it notes and memory verses all over my dashboard. And 
the Lord really blessed my wife and I. Um, the guy that led us to the Lord discipled us for four months, four hours every Tuesday night for four months. And boy, what a blessing it was. And he challenged us to memorize scripture. So, so I had my preachers that I listened to all the time. And, and one of the questions that resonated in my mind a lot was, why four Gospels? You know, Matthew tells you some, some of the same stuff that John has, and John has some of the same as Luke, and Mark's got some, some of the same as Matthew and Luke, but not John, you know, and that kind of, I started thinking, why is that? And I heard a sermon by Chuck Swindoll one day, and, and, and it helped me understand this. Like, why does Matthew mention the healing and, Jesus, and Mark mentions, mentions the, the teaching, even though we know they go hand in hand? And, and he explained it like this. He said, like, if, if we picked four people out of this class and gave you a camera and said, okay, we want you to, to go and... Um, Let's just advance a couple years and say we've got our new church building down the road. And I want you to take 24, you know, film used to have 24 or 36 pictures. Take 24 pictures of the new church. You know, I, I might, probably all four of us would have a picture of the front. You know, well, you know, the, the lady in the, out of the four, she might have a picture of the nursery. You know, probably not me. I, you know, my wife works in there. She's got a good idea of what that looks like. And. You know, I'll probably have the adult Sunday school class. And, you know, I think that's kind of how it is, just the different personalities of the same spirit working within them, but different personalities would notice different things, right? Does that make sense? So I think that's kind of helps me understand why Matthew was maybe drawn to report more of the healing and Mark more of the teaching. But we need we know that the two are most of the times uh, combined. But even though this is a public teaching now, Jesus in his love and tender, compassionate care for these 12 still took them aside and taught them privately, which I think that's great if you think about it because, you know, if I'm sure these guys, like all of us, had a lot of pride in their lives, right? And so... You know, if if you come and you start teaching me something in front of everybody, I, my pride's going to well up. You know, so I think Jesus, in his love and tender care for them, he pulled them to the side and and continued to teach them, and which really shows how busy our Lord really was, doesn't it? The fact that he was teaching publicly, then he pulled these guys to the side and teach them, and and we see that. Look at verses ten and twelve, because this is all in the midst of this public teaching. And uh, in verses 10 and 12, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, so he continues to teach them, verses 14 and 15, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, that's directly to the disciples, verses 23 through 27, and uh, that's when he's teaching them privately about, you know, the issue of wealth and entering the kingdom, 29 through 31. Same thing, 32 through 34, and they were on the road. Now they're leaving, right? And Jesus starts to tell them privately again, and then even 38 through 45. Um, So I I love the fact that, man, he just never stops, right? And isn't that interesting, as I think through my own life of, um, 
the Holy Spirit's work in us. Now, does he ever take a break? Does the Holy Spirit ever take a break in saying, okay, you know, I've been teaching Tim for a week now. I think I'm going to go over here and teach this guy, you know, and Tim's good. No, it, it's constant. If, we're, if our minds are open, we're reading our Bibles, we're studying Scripture, that the Lord is always teaching us like he was these guys. And that's, that's encouraging to me to know that he never gives up on us, right? Well, as we might expect from the teaching we've had thus far in Mark, as usual, seeking the opportunity to discredit our Lord in front of all these people who shows up. His bitter, relentless enemies, right? The Pharisees. Here they are. And, they're, you know, they're, these guys are just hostile to Jesus. And over and over again, we see their, their examples of hostility. You don't need to turn there. I'll read a couple for you. Mark chapter 2, as we saw a long time ago. Verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, when I think about that, why in the world would it matter to them who he eats with? You ever think about that? What, what do you think that, why do you think it bothered them that he would do that? You know, the next one, Mark 2, 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against how, how to destroy him. 3, 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. Uh, and then Mark 7, of course, you know, the, um, the one of the washing of the hands, you know, and being defiled. Mark 8, 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Why did they care? You ever think about it? What do you think? They would have just left him alone, sure. Yeah, anything else? I think it was pretty obvious to them that he was Messiah. Mm-hmm. They were offended that he didn't honor the system that they had come up with. It was sure. handed down, okay. you know, error upon error upon error to, yeah. to that day. And, you know, their, their concept of righteousness was self-righteousness. There you go. And yeah. Jesus basically was saying you're going to have to have an alien righteousness, mm-hmm. not from yourself. Not from your system. Not from yeah. your system. You know, and, and the thing that Jesus really took him to task on was, why do you teach people, you know, to observe your traditions and ignore the commandments of God? Mm-hmm. That, that's, I think that's, that's good. Um, and, and I think from time to time the disciples kind of almost fell in that trap too, right? We saw that a couple of weeks ago when these guys were casting out a demon and, you know, they got ticked off at them and, and we, we talked about that a lot, and, I, and I, I think, you know, and I love the fact that we talked about it in class of the fact that we've really got to be careful that we don't set up ourselves in our minds that we're holier than others, you know, and I, I think that's probably a lot of what was going on there. You know, they, they thought, man, we're the, we're the religious elite, and if you're the Messiah, you need to be the religious elite with us and stop hanging out with these low lives, you know, that, and it, I'm reminded again of the, uh, in, in James, you know, where the, the uh, you know, if the James teaches that if the rich guy comes in all dressed up, or maybe not even rich, just looks like he is, you know, when they give him the prominent seat in the front and the other guy they set in the back, and, 
you know, we just, we've got to really be careful. And I think that's what was these guys were getting at is that they thought, you know, Jesus, you can't be doing it this way. We're, the religious, we're supposed to be in, and it's the exact opposite is what Jesus was teaching, right? I, I uh, years and years ago, um, saw a video, um, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in Brooklyn, New York. And y'all ever, anybody familiar with that church? And, uh, you know, they're kind of world famous for their choir. I don't know if they still are, but boy, back in the day, they had the choir. You know, they were just phenomenal. And, and um, the, probably the best example of a multi-ethnic church, probably in the world as far as I know, and, uh, of course, I mean, the demographic of Brooklyn, New York is that way anyway. And, uh, but there was, in this video that they did, they, they um, would do some songs of, for the choir, and then they would have testimony of people in the church. And there was this guy, and I had his name a second ago, Michael, Michael Ruffin, I think is his name. And, and he was a, 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 street, a homeless guy, an alcoholic that, you know, pushed the buggy, and um, he would typically, there was a little cubby on the back side of the building that they were in, and that's where he would end up on Sunday morning. Most homeless people are active at night because th- they can keep warm by being awake at night, and then when the, it gets warmer in the daytime, they can sleep and not, not be as cold in their outdoor environment. And so he would typically, you know, roam at night and come to that little cubby and sleep and that particular morning it was Easter Sunday and um, the music was louder than normal or whatever longer than normal I guess they had four or five services and typically by the time he would get in the cubby they would be gone but Easter they had more services and so he couldn't sleep so he decided to go in and when he went in uh, he sat up in the balcony and there was a lady giving her testimony and she was a lady from the choir, uh, very attractive, red-headed gal that was an ex-heroin addict. All right, so he's hearing her talk about how she was left for dead in the, in the shooting house, you know, the house where they shoot up heroin, the old abandoned building downtown Brooklyn, and, you know, everybody left when she OD'd, and somehow <laughs> somebody else came in to use and saw her and, I guess, called 911. So... Anyway, she's giving her testimony, and David Ruffin's hearing this, and the Lord moves on him, and he gets up and starts coming down to where the preacher is. And about this time, the preacher starts talking, and he said, and this guy's very well-dressed, you know, nice suit, silk tie, and he says, here this guy comes, you know. And, and he said, that, I think it was the fourth service, maybe the fifth, and he said, not today, Lord. You know, I, I don't have any money for him. Why today? You know, fourth service, I'm tired. I just want to be done and go home and be with my family. It's Easter, Lord. And the guy keeps coming. And he said he stopped about 10 feet away from him. And he said the odor was so horrific that he had to turn his head and get a breath and come back. to. And, and the guy stopped and and he made eye contact he took a breath he came back and the guy comes up and falls on him and says I want the Jesus that girl was talking about and he said at that moment you know after all that religious pomp in his mind 
At that moment, he said, God said, I mean, he wasn't saying God audibly said or anything. He doesn't go there. But, you know, he just felt, take a deep breath. You know, that's the smell that I died for. And, you know, I think that's what these Pharisees needed, right? And the disciples, too, as we see them get, getting upset with people trying to work for our Lord, you know. And, and we, gotta, we just got to guard ourselves against that, you know, the, to know that, that we are not above anybody else just because we're Christians, right, or because we're this or that. We just got to be careful. And, but these guys, of course, weren't. And here they are in verse 2 um, coming to argue with him. Um, and uh, verse 2 says, And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You know, I mean, just think about that. Here they are, and boom, why that question? You know, I was like, wow. And I, I read something this week and studying for this, and this whether this is it or not, um, well, it's a little further in my notes, so we'll just have to wait to get there. I'm not flipping pages. But as soon as he resumed his public teaching, there they were, ready to resume their attacks on him. They wanted to catch him in their trap. They wanted to put him on the spot. They wanted to discredit him in the eyes of the public, right? They didn't pull him aside like Jesus tells us to do, right? If we're going to talk to somebody about something in their lives, we need to pull them aside, do it privately. Uh, They didn't do that. They wanted to do it publicly so perhaps the crowds would turn away from him. They thought in their minds that their question, uh, no matter how he answered, would create difficulty for him. But, you know, they were aware of what he taught because in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's 5, 31, 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So why the question? And the answer, I think, is to test him. But we got to understand that among the Jews, there was a difference of opinion as to what Moses had taught about divorce. And in Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 1 in particular, but it's really verses 1 through 4, gives us what Moses taught. So Deuteronomy 24, 1 says, And when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he, was found, because he has found some indecency in her, He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the, the Pharisees and their scribes, and, and actually probably most of the Jewish people, were agreed that divorce was permit, permitted in accordance with that passage in Deuteronomy 24. But from the beginning of the first century, there were... A lot. There were two different opinions, really. That they, the opinions had polarized into two camps, and one of them 
was the followers, and, and these Pharisees here and everybody involved here would have known this, the followers of, probably won't say this guy's name right, but Shammai, perhaps, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, and, and he was a, a, a prominent rabbi, and he argued that something, what Moses was talking about was that something morally shameful was in view, particularly adultery, right? But also perhaps um, observance of the Jewish law. But the other guy, uh, Rabbi Hillel, argued that in addition to any moral fault, anything which caused annoyance or embarrassment to the husband was a legitimate grounds for divorce, even something as silly as burning his dinner. Now, need we, America is followers of Hillel, it seems, right? And, uh, I mean, but think about it. So all these guys would have known that. The Pharisees knew it. The disciples knew it. And, but what I was going to say a minute ago is of why this question on divorce. You know, here we are in the first public encounter with these guys, and boom, he asked about divorce. Well, it's uh, an interesting fact that I found was that this territory of Perea uh, is the territory of Herod Antipas. Remember him? In Mark chapter 6, he's the guy that uh, had John the Baptist imprisoned and, imprisoned and at the request of his wife Herodias had John the Baptist executed. And for his own, not John the Baptist, but for uh, Herod's, immoral divorce and remarriage so i don't know maybe a stretch but perhaps uh they thought that herod and herodias might uh catch up on this teaching of jesus and him publicly um, opposing divorce and maybe um yeah they were thinking well herod will come get jesus and chop his head off so i don't know so Back to the question, though, that he asked, that they ask is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus replies, um, you got to love it, by asking them a question, right? Puts it right back on them. What did Moses command you? And notice that Jesus doesn't simply answer these guys immediately out of his own authority, which he could have done, right? Because he does have all authority, but he sent them back to the authority of the scripture. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I just, I love the way Jesus does that, right? He, he did it often. He looked at the Old Testament as a book that had the answers, a book that has authority on life. You know, he never superseded the word of God. And, and that's very encouraging to me today, right? And, and he frequently quoted scripture. What, what did he say a lot? It is written. You know, he would go back, you know, the... I've heard teaching on, uh, you know, spiritual warfare, which we need to have teaching on spiritual warfare, no doubt, because we need to know how to battle the enemy. But, you know, I've heard people say, you know, that when Satan's bugging you, you, you need to rebuke, you know, I rebuke you, Satan. You know, that's not what Jesus did. He just, he quoted scripture to him. That's what we need to do. And that's what he does here. He goes back with scripture. I knew a guy one time years ago, um, and uh, he was a country gentleman, and uh, we were talking about that topic, and he said, well, Tim, sometimes I can't remember a verse, so I say this. He said, it ain't in the Bible. He was a real country guy, a great guy, but it works. And I said, well, what was it? And he said, I say, Lord Jesus, he's a-bugging me. Come get him. <laughs> yeah. So he still wasn't talking to Satan, though. He was talking to God, right? 
And I'm okay with that. So Jesus goes to the Word and um, asks them, what did Moses command you? Well, the only thing they can do is go back to Deuteronomy 24. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That was was the, the reply. And so... This is what they use for their basis for, for divorce practice. And saying that, I think what they were getting at is that Moses allowed or permitted divorce. They were implying that Moses had turned over the right to them, the right of divorce. You make up your mind. You can write her a certificate. But Jesus goes back and says in verse 5 here, ten five, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, now here we are going back to Genesis, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus, interpreting the word of Moses to them, what he's doing there for them and what he's doing for us as well, is showing us why this was the case, right? And interestingly, you don't find anything in there. It wasn't because the wife burnt dinner, or it, you know, it wasn't. It was really to protect the wife. Is what's going on? Jesus makes a very insightful, insightful statement when he says, "Because of your hardness of heart," is why he wrote that certificate of divorce. He didn't, write, he didn't allow you to write that because you want to divorce your wife. He allowed you to write it because of your hardness of heart. It was because men's hearts were hardened that Moses allowed divorce. So what does it mean? What does hardness of heart mean? When you hear that, what do you think? You know, I go back to Genesis when, or Exodus when, you know, the, the dialogue back and forth between Pharaoh and um, Moses, right, of let my people go. And um, so what do you think? What is hardness of heart? If, if, if Moses, Jesus says, Moses allowed you to do this because of the hardness of your heart, what was he getting at there? Anger, stubbornness, simple pride. Simple pride, yeah. Okay, good. So that was that bitterness, stubbornness, anger was already there and just reinforcing it right. And I think that's good. That's, um, it's showing that uh, an inability for that person to understand, I mean, a rebellious attitude would be another one. I mean, that's already there, right? That's already in the heart. The rebellious attitude of man is already there. And, and it's because of that that Moses said you could write this certificate. Not because this, that, or the other. Because of the hardness of your heart. Now, where does that put the blame? On the man. On the man. And the responsibility. And then, well, Jesus then says in a little bit, you know, that the, the wife as well. But back on the person, right? The blame is back on the person. And, and that's really important to consider because... What do we typically want to do? Blame somebody, else. Blame somebody else. I mean, you see that from the garden forward, right? 
and, and you, we got to be careful with that, you know. And I, I mean, it's um, um, there's some couples in here that have been married longer than others. How long have y'all been married? Fifty-two. Fifty-two. Same. 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 Yeah. Sixty. Sixty. Hey, man, I've got forty-three, <laughs> but uh, yeah, think about that. Okay, sixty, fifty-two, fifty-two. Has it been smooth sailing? You know? <laughs> all the women went. But, you know, I mean, think about all of the times that if, if you were operating under Rabbi Hillel's teaching, all of the times that it'd be over, right? So what happens... Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like our spiritual life. Are you on the mountaintop all the time? Of course not. So you grow through those things, right? And the growing through then produces a stronger marriage. So at 60 or 52 years, you, you know, there's a, I'm sure y'all's are like mine now. My and my wife's relationship now, I'm telling you, is sweeter than it was on the honeymoon. You know, after 43 years. Why in the world is that? It certainly isn't because of me. You know, it's her, no. She, and, and she would say the same thing, right? It's because of this loving Savior, Jesus Christ, came into our lives and transformed us. So we both still have faults and, you know, and we both, we, we still, what's the polite way of saying it? You know, have disagreements from time to time. But nonetheless, it's... You know, we, we just got to be careful. Our society is out of control. And, and I didn't look at any of the statistics, you know, that are there that people tell you that, you know, it's the same in the church as it is in the world and, and all. Um, but it's not because you got into an argument, so let's just have it. Well, Kenny and I were talking on the way to church this morning about a movie actor and um, um I don't know why we went from there to how many times. Oh, he, he said, well, the guy's almost broke. And I said, well, how in the world could that be? He said, well, because they, they all get married a thousand times, you know. And by the time that you throw a baby in there with each one of those, you know, it's gone. So we don't, we just can't be changing God's design for this. Yeah. Well, Tim, about the hardness of the heart, it's repeated a lot in the, in the Old Testament, but Ezekiel 11, 19 and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so mm -hmm. in other words it's, I think it's speaking to the unregenerate right nature, having that the flesh yeah. is hard resistant to God's word right mm -hmm. and, you know it's interesting when I think about Jesus being fully man and fully God <clears throat> God the Holy Spirit gave Moses the words to write. Jesus was there and knew what was being written mm -hmm. was for this occasion. Yeah, that's neat. So, <laughs> yeah. so he asked them, well, what's your proof text for what you believe? Yeah. And they give it to him and he says, this is exactly why you're wrong. Yeah, that's right. Which is great a great segue in, into this. What does the law do? What is the purpose of of the law to point out sin that's right great example of that Romans 3.20 by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge 
of sin. So just as Phil said, now you've got the lawmaker Moses writing this law, right? The lawgiver and giving the laws concerning marriage. Why? That, that he should give permission for divorce in order to make visible, I think, what was going on in their hearts the whole time, like you said, just the hardness of heart in that particular situation. I mean, think about what was going on in, in Israel in the time of that writing there. It was evidently that hearts were being hardened, and that's why divorce came in. So, I sure. I saw a unique problem with this passage, though, because even in light of what you just explained, it seems to me as if God was providing an accommodation for, for a sin. But I think if, if that doesn't get answered in the next couple minutes... Bring it back up, all right? So the provision of Deuteronomy 24, in reality, well, let me back up one second. What Jesus' purpose here, I think, from my perspective, is to make clear that the intention of Deuteronomy 24 was not to make divorce acceptable, but to limit the sinfulness and to control its consequences of what was going on there. But his point was really to show not to approve, but to show that it's because of your wickedness and your hardness of heart. The provision was, was a witness to the gross evil which arose or even consisted at that time, a disregard for the creation ordinance of marriage in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The stubborn re- rebellion that was going on against the divine ordinance of marriage in Genesis 1.21 think is what he's getting at is the essence of the hard-heartedness so the certificate of divorce was and this maybe will help with that was Moses making a merciful concession for the sake of the wife for without this regulation a harsh man might be inclined to just throw his wife out and and Jesus doesn't stop with that though he appeals he goes right back to the to the um, creation narrative And this lifts the discussion, brings it up to a higher plane by relating it to the purpose for which God had for marriage, which is uh, verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So that shows that the Mosaic permission was actually a departure from what God had intended for marriage. That he never intended it from the beginning to end in a divorce. But because when Jesus says the two shall become one flesh, he was affirming, I can't say this word, I've practiced it all week the indissolubility of marriage, right? That, that he was affirming that the husband and the wife are two become one. So you're right. I mean, how can you, you can't, I, I counseled a guy last year who uh, had been married for a long, long time and his wife passed away. And, and he, um, of course, the, the, you know, was very grief stricken and I'm not sure that he was a believer, so the grief had a different level to it because he couldn't understand eternity. And But the Lord gave me a thought 
while I was meeting with him because he couldn't understand how he was feeling so much pain. And, and I explained it to him like this, that, you know, if, if, if that, I, I take that literally, the two becoming one flesh. So it's kind of like you're sewn together, okay, stitched together. So if my wife is stitched to my side and all of a sudden she's ripped off, I'm not surgically removed, ripped off of me, this whole right side is going to be a mess, right? And it's going to hurt physically, emotionally, pain. And, and that's, I went on to explain that that's what the two becoming one means to me, you know, that you literally become, so how can you be, you can't be separated. Tim Ryan's a physician. I mean, you think how, what that would do to the body, right? I mean, if you just sewed it together, I don't think it would, I don't think it would ever really grow together, but, um, you know, just rip. And, yes, ma'am. Well, there's a good point. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, how do you weave the sovereignty into that, you know? And Kit and I had that conversation this morning. I, I performed a wedding recently, and I told her after studying this passage, I don't think I should have. You know, so, you know, what is, what do you do with that? Um Certainly, um, for us as believers, you know, uh, there's some single gals in the room here, uh, some single guys in the room. Uh, certainly for us, um, you know, Christians, uh, yes, because we're going to be doing it the right way. But for people like, uh, you know, I don't know, how would you explain that? You know, under the overarching sovereignty of God, he somehow, and I don't know that I fully understand that, um, permits and allows everything, right? I mean, even sin. But is he the author of sin? You know, well, of course, we all say no. Well, then where did sin come from? Something's happening outside of God, and then he can't be totally sovereign, but he's not the one. So, um, There's my out. Yeah, I, I think so. They could. I think in their minds they could come there. Does anybody have any input on that? To No, I think once you're Christians, I think if you're believers, then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unless they, yeah, that's in First Corinthians seven, right? Pardon? Yeah, First Corinthians seven. Yeah. Yeah. Or not, right? That's right. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, most marriage, not all, of course, nowadays, but most, I think most probably unbelieving marriages even in our country take place with a preacher, you know, kind of giving an oath like that. So, yeah, it's, I, I look at it this way. You're not necessarily making a covenant with your spouse. You're making a covenant with God. And that certainly cannot be broken. 
without massive consequences. So, God made the union possible, and because of that, he can say what God has joined together, therefore, th- what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, right? So, and your question again was, say it one more time. The first question? Yeah. Okay. Normally, if you take the thing hard past, you just slap it twice and you, you can destroy it. Mm-hmm. But here he seems to be putting it into a gray area. Okay. And I think perhaps that's where the disciples were thinking because you go to verses 10 through 12. Look at that. It says, after hearing all that, now they're back in the house with just the disciples in Christ. And in the house, the disciples asked him about again about this matter and he said to them whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her and if she divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery evidently you know they weren't (coughs) understanding it quite well with that either so I think that Jesus here is telling them that a husband 
who divorces his wife, thereby separating what God is doing together, is committing sin. I think he's saying that it's sinful if you do this. But then if he marries another, he's committing another sin, right? The sin of adultery. So I think, you know, that um, to me the, the out was just showing the hardness of their hearts and that he wasn't really saying it's permitted. Does that make sense? You know, I don't know that he was really, um, I, I thought back and forth and back and forth on that and just think that he was really just trying to point out the wickedness of men's hearts and how they go astray. This one commentator, named, uh, last name Murray, said this, divorce is contrary to the divine institution, contrary to the nature of marriage, and contrary to the to the divine action by which the union is effected. It is precisely here that its wickedness becomes singularly apparent. It is the sundering by man of a union God has constituted. Divorce is the breaking of a seal which has been engraved, engraven by the hand of God. So, you know, I don't know if that does, helps answer that question or... Um, does anybody else have any input on, on her question of is God making a loop here, a loophole, if you will, in the divine plan to allow for people to divorce? Right. You know, I've got a couple that I'm counseling now that's uh, had that they were divorced and remarried and because of adultery and so yeah, it's what were you going to say? That? You know, if we sit down and codify the answers to all our questions like this, then we'll be just like the Pharisees and just go back to the, the Mishnah or you know all the commentary mm-hmm. we've had on Scripture. <clears throat> the sufficiency of Scripture is. It's in there. If you don't see it, keep looking in Scripture. Um, but, you know, we have what, what Paul wrote. But you said it earlier, Ken, Trevor, briefly, when you said it was an accommodation for the protection of the wife mm-hmm. who would just be no more than a prostitute, you know, if God hadn't given this provision. Sure. Yeah, I thought of, I'm reading a book, um, fantastic book, uh, 12 Years a Slave. I don't know if y'all read the book, but, um, and when, it, it reminded me of when uh, Solomon Northrup, it's, it's really his biography, his autobiography, and when he was, uh, had worked really hard, and he had a good owner at this point in time, and he, he uh, this guy was going to give him a leave where he could go and kind of like in the military almost, you know, where he could go back and visit these other friends. And and he knew he had to have a letter, though. You couldn't just be a slave and be out on the road without a letter. And, uh, I mean, that's, you know, people would capture you and sell you and all, you know, you're even in a worse mess if that's even possible. But um, it's kind of the same thing that this woman with this certificate of divorce, you know, if she had that, it was almost kind of a, you know, a, a clearing point for her, like you said, that she wouldn't be considered a common prostitute or whatever. So, 
It was really to protect her is what I gained from it. So. Right. Yeah, either way. So I think that's the nutshell is that Jesus is showing us our wickedness, our hardness of heart. Getting you, sir. And so what Jesus was saying is, okay, you can go back to Moses, but I'm going back to Genesis. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And look at his way, because they obviously knew. Yeah. With Genesis. That's the starting point, right? Yeah. Good. That's good. All right. Well, we'll stop there um, and pick up next week.